everybody. This is the Joe Swanson Propaganda Podcast, and the reason today the music didn't, uh, you know, trail behind me and and uh, um, fade off so nicely was because I lost my phone last night on a Tuesday night um, uh, evening of of fun. Apparently, there was karaoke and double shots of uh, whiskey involved. Um, so we're here today. Um, I am super honored uh, that. Uh, joining me on the podcast is is one of the living legends in our community, um, and the podcast, as you may know or as you may not know, is brought to you by Kingpin Tattoo Supply. Kingpin is found online. They're a full service tattoo supply company um, on kingpintattoosupply dot com. They're on Instagram. That's where everybody are is these days uh, uh, at Kingpin Tattoo Supply, and then they're on Twitter at simply Kingpin. Uh, supply. So go check them out. Let them know next time you make an order that you heard about them on the podcast. You're listening to the podcast, and uh, we appreciate that. So thank you to Kingpin for supporting the show. Um, today, again, as I said, I'm super honored um, to bring a guest that I've known for a handful of years and uh, been able to um, have some great talks with already, and uh, is a, is a wonderful artist and who's been around for a while and seeing a lot in this industry um shanghai kate Helenbrand, how are you today from texas joining me on the show i'm awesome joe i'm uh thank you for having me it's great to see you again it's great to talk to you and i'm thrilled that you would invite me to uh talk story here it's a little hot in austin so we're jealous that you're there in cool california but you know we're making it cool here too so Doing our best. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's my pleasure to have you on. I mean, since uh, since we met back in, I think it was around 2009, I had just come back from Minnesota to California. I was working at a shop in San Francisco, and uh, you came by and did a little guest spot, and um, we had some time to hang out then, and then also uh, back when you were you came in to do a couple shows here in California in San Francisco, and and uh, we had some we had some good good opportunity to hang out then went up and saw Lyle and I just caught up with him uh, at, at a show recently and um, hopefully going to get him on the podcast as well. But, you know, it's been great to um, over the years be able to um, hang out and, and chat with you and, and hear some of the cool things that you've been able to do through your career and also see today. I mean, you have a shop that you just gave me a wonderful little tour on Skype of um, your continuing to put out good tattoos you're continuing to um bring the best of the industry forward to the general public and it's and it's really cool to see that over a long career you've done that from the beginning and uh you have such a great spirit about you um and and it shows through your work and your your presentation of of yourself thanks yeah i uh i consider myself one of the luckiest people on the planet ever uh, to be able to do what I do, uh, started in, uh, well, I started actually getting involved in tattooing in 1969, uh, but I really started tattooing in 1971, and I was so lucky at, uh, at the way that I was able to get into the business and to stay at a fairly high level from day one. Um, I just, you know, I always say, you know, I must have been really good in a past life, if you believe in karma, because there's no way I could have earned all of this, 
you know, in this in this life. I mean, I've just been so blessed by fortune. But I do what I love to do, and uh, and I live, breathe, sleep, dream tattoos, and always have done, always will. And it's such an exciting life to choose, you know, to be able to um, travel and to meet people one-on-one and tattoo them in exchange for their art. I do that sometimes with the Kuna Indians in Panama and in uh, the Philippines recently. I'm so, I'm 69 years old this year. <clears throat> it's only one year you get to say that you're 69, so I'm broadcasting it all over the place. But, you know, when I'm 70 uh, soon, I feel... I still feel like I'm like 12, you know, or th- well, like 35. I feel like I'm about 35. So while the physical casing is aging a little bit with gravity and so forth, inside I still feel like there's so much more to do, so many more places to go and see, and so many more tattoos to do. So I'm just always um, happy to wake up in the morning, thrilled to get to work, and uh, I love to do what I do. I'm, I'm you know kind of learning though that you know the world of tattooing is skyrocketing around me with all the talent that I see in Europe and you know the the new people that are doing you know even old traditional designs in a new way and that includes you um you know I just I'm flabbergasted at how you know how quickly this art has developed and I've had to kind of you know I, I did really work hard to try and learn the new styles I considered myself a student for about 30 years, learning tribal and learning photorealism and black and gray and single needle and all that sort of stuff. But there's no way I can, I now do color portraits and, you know, some of the things that are this hyper uh, realism that people are doing in black and gray. There's no way that, and shige in, in Japanese work, there's no way that I can approximate or even, you know, uh, try to pretend to contend with these new styles so I've kind of now learned that I have to accept you know my training accept uh, the skills that I have now and just settle into you know just doing what I know how to do and to do well rather than you know try to stay on the cutting edge I can't do that anymore there's no way it's going so fast and so so far exploding around me that you know, and it's kind of a sad thing, you know, because you like, you know, it's kind of a, an acceptance of age and kind of an acceptance of, uh, you know, sort of uh, the end of, you know, the training and the skill sets and then and the new information I'm getting. And I have to say, well, I just, you know, I just do this now and and uh, do the best that I can. But it's it's interesting to come to this part of my life where maybe now I can just tell my stories and, you know, do little nice roses every once in a while, you know, and and uh, some lettering every once in a while that I learned from Jack when I was working at Tattoo Land and, and stuff. And uh, But just say that's enough. Talk stories, show pictures. That's why I'm really excited to come out uh, with my new book called The New York Times, which is a photo album of the photographs that Michael Malone took when we were first falling in love and discovering each other and discovering tattooing in New York City and how we really both got involved in tattooing through uh, putting together um, the co-production of the contemporary section of the show at the Museum of American Folk Art in New York. That's really how we both began 
Uh, we were uh, partners and roommates and so forth at that time, boyfriend, girlfriend. And um, Michael discovered tattooing um, through photography. And I was a graphic designer working at an advertising agency. And Michael documented all of these incredible tattoos that we were finding on the streets in New York when it was illegal. And he uh, took slide after slide after slide of people like Tom DeVita and, and Huck Spaulding doing work on Tom DeVita and then Ed Hardy coming to New York. And Ed was like 23 years old, but doing incredible work. And then Ed, of course, introduced us to Sarah Jerry. So we started, you know, these pictures, Corey the second, and uh, we um, produced this, this contemporary section at the, the Museum of American Folk Art. I just discovered these slides in my stories I've been dragging all over the planet for the past 40 years and uh, decided that the world needs really to see these pictures. And so my new book is coming out, and it's called The New York Times, and it's mainly full-colored pages, photographs of these slides that Michael took that I've rediscovered. And so I'm going to start documenting the, the history of me and what we found together and then the history of my travels and adventures and the stories that I've learned and the stories that I've heard through the books and through my lecture called From Voodoo to Vogue. And that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to Minneapolis next weekend. I'm going to speak at the Minneapolis State Fair uh, or the Minnesota State Fair, I guess it is, uh, and do my lecture from Voodoo to Vogue, which uh, is something I'm really impas- I'm passionate about now. I'm really involved in which uh, through that um, discovery, that investigation, what, what is I've that, learned. What is that uh, that lecture about? Uh, for well, it's called Vogue? it's called from Voodoo to Vogue, and it's really the history of of tattoo from day from you know prehistoric times, basically pre recorded times, and how we we discovered. Uh, you know, we've discovered tattooing, and tattooing basically doesn't leave behind any permanent records, like painting or sculpture, or you know, uh, it's very you know, uh, it disappears when the person dies. So uh, we really don't have a solid record all the way back, uh, other than the anecdotal information we find with the tools and so forth. Uh, the earliest we know of are the reindeer horn fragments that we found at a. Um, rite of passage or ritual uh, cave in south of France uh, that are, have been carbon dated to 33,000 years before Christ. But um, then that's, those are the first real documents we have of early tattooing, plus the little Venus woman, you know, the little tiny sculpture of the woman with the big tits and the big butt and the big belly. We found her globally, and uh, many of these uh, little statues have tattoos all over them, so we can we can look back and see when people were decorating those and carrying those around. I really believe that tattoos started when we were still living in trees prior to cave painting, prior to, uh, you know, um, actually uh, domesticating animals and growing plants when we were still hunter-gatherers. And we can also surmise a little bit of the history by um, discovering Stone Age cultures and looking at how they live we have found Stone Age cultures in the Philippines and other islands and also different jungles and so forth. And so we can look at them and extrapolate how, you know, possibly our more civilized cultures had beginnings. But, um, and tattoos a huge part of all of that. 
But uh, one of the things that's most fascinating to me in my, in my putting this lecture together and investigating the history, the real history of tattooing, um, is that uh, most, if not almost all, early tattoo artists were female. And that tattooing really ties very closely to, uh, you know, the advent of menses in young girls and how, uh, you know, women in cultures so far flung from Japan to Morocco to, uh, you know, the jungles of uh, Peru to, um, you know, New Zealand, they all get their face, Eskimos, they all get their faces and their chins tattooed around the time of early menses. And menses is, you know, seen alternatively as taboo, also as very magical, as very mysterious to men. And so women who, quote unquote, are bleeding are seen as uh, not too unclean, maybe, or too, you know, too special to even deal with in common practice. So they can't eat with men, they can't talk with men, they can't touch men, they can't be with men. So who's tattooing these women's faces? It would have to be women. And then if you read books like W.B. Hambly, who, with the history of tattooing, the pronoun is always a feminine pronoun. She was the tattoo artist. We watched her tattoo. These books were written in the 1800s. So my lecture is kind of hopefully bringing some sense of pride back into my field, you know, uh, of the feminine influence in tattooing. That's amazing. Did you know from from early on when you were in that time in New York City, um, did you have an idea that it would come to giving, you know, amazingly historical lectures at a state fair and, and being on television and doing all these different things? Did you in guys have any sense that it would it would move from that? And did tattooing catch you back then like it has you now? Oh, no. Uh, I had no idea. I mean, tattooing when I started was illegal in the five boroughs in Manhattan. You know, there were no tattoo studios that were visible. Uh, you know, it was against the law if you uh, tattooed, you know, at all in the five major boroughs of New York City. So, you know, we were outlaws, you know, and everybody that I was hanging out with were outlaws. And, uh, and so uh, we were, you know, seen as renegades. And I, I really cherished that aspect of it. That's one of the reasons that I got into tattooing was because the characters that I met in the beginning were so colorful. Huck Spaulding and his wife Josie from, you know, the carnivals. I mean, when I was a little girl, my grandmother used to drag me to all the carnivals and the sideshows. She was a wealthy woman and she she uh, wanted to uh, expose me to, you know, all aspects of life. And so she would take me to, you know, sideshows and carnivals because that was our pre-television entertainment and so um you know i grew up uh, looking at oddities and looking at the freaks and i was I, one of my first memories is of you know being a little girl putting my fist through the um the wedding ring of a giant i was sitting on his lap and my um i put my little hand through his uh through his wedding ring and that's one of the first things that i i remember so I've always been attracted to the others. I've always been, I've always felt like, uh, you know, um, living outside or being a fringe dweller was the most exciting place to be. Uh, despite all the family uh, 
kind of pressure for me to uh, become a secretary or a nurse or a school teacher. I always felt that that was just not really exciting enough for me. So, you know, when I began tattooing, there were only two females that I even knew about uh, as tattoo artists. That was back in the turn of the you know, 70s, and that was uh, Bev, Robin- Bev Robinson, who is also known as Cindy Ray in Australia. And then, excuse me, and then also uh, Rusty Skews in England. Uh, neither were, well, I guess Rusty was really more of a tattoo artist than Cindy at that time. Cindy was more of an oddity, more of a display person, more of a hoochie-coochie girl who got tattoos strictly for um, presentation on stage, not really as a you know real art form. Though now she loves to tattoo and she is still tattooing and she still tattoos with her husband Danny there in Melbourne. But um, so, the, so the appeal to me was initially the peaceful in tattooing and the way that they live their lives because it seems to me that uh, you can tattoo um, anywhere, you can take a tattoo machine anywhere and earn a living. Uh, and so that freedom really appealed to me because I started running away from home when I was like two years old and I always wanted to live on the road and I always wanted to be a traveler. And so that's initially the biggest appeal initially, but, um, yeah, we had no idea that tattooing was going to get to this stage every, every year. It seemed like, you know, something new would come along from, you know, the tattoo uh, conventions and then, you know, the tattoo magazines and then the tattoo reality shows and now the movie, you know, it's like every year it gets bigger. And every year we all say we it can't get any bigger. It's got to fall out. It's got to change. It's we can't it can't be supported. You know, I think it was about 15 years ago that USA Today uh, proclaimed it as uh, one of the five fastest growing industries in the United States. Well, it certainly has exploded from there. So, no, I had no idea what was going to happen. Nobody, nobody did. Nobody could see this. Yeah, you said in a in an interview that um, the fact that tattooing was illegal back in New York probably helped with um, you as a female coming into tattooing, which was a male dominated uh, industry at that time. Uh, like you said, only two females that you knew that were tattooing um, because coming up through New York in that time where it was illegal, that kind of, it was already outlaw. So you as a female, it kind of broke down that gender class. Is, is that what I'm understanding from that, from reading that is that it helped you kind of um, overcome those maybe initial barriers that would have been put up uh, for you if you tried to get in to tattooing, maybe in a, in a legal state. Absolutely. It put me in a bubble that protected me. I was uh, I was protected by, uh, you know, the fact that I was underground and, un- and not visible. So, you know, our, our, our clients actually were called off of the streets. Malone would go out during the day with business cards and just look for anybody who had a little peak of a tattoo hiding out, you know, coming out from a shirt or underneath a you know a pant leg or something and he would give them business cards and they would come to our our studio it wasn't until I got and I was accepted I mean when I wanted in fact that's how I got into tattooing was our clients came through and said you know oh you have an art training you know because I went to Art Center School of Design in California and I also went to Chenard School of Fine Arts in California 
and I was a graphic designer and a creative and an advertising agency. So they all said, oh, we, we think you would be good at it. So why don't you, you know, do a tattoo on us? And so that's how I started um, because it was man's work. I mean, actually, I even tried to get a tattoo from Cliff Raven in like 1971 after I had started tattooing and I was told no I couldn't get the tattoo design that I wanted I wanted a clipper ship and they said no you can't get a clipper ship you have to get a a squirrel or a rabbit or a skunk named Stinky those were the designs that were allowable for females I ultimately wound up getting little cherry blossoms because that was better than a skunk named Stinky but uh, it still doesn't really you know uh, reflect who I was. I wanted the clipper ship, which indicated my love of freedom and curiosity and independence. I could not get that. Only women who are psychotic or prostitutes were getting tattooed at the time. So, you know, we have come, you know, a long way, baby, with all of this stuff. But um, my, our clients really kind of pushed me into tattooing I said I don't want to be Yoko Ono remember when Yoko was blamed for the the breakup of the Beatles uh, because she wanted to play a tambourine on stage you know it was just such a uh, you know we really have come a long way now we're reversing that by females dressing up like sluts and wanting to be Kim Kardashian but that's another story anyway um yeah, it would it protected me because it didn't it kept me invisible. So I didn't really run into the prejudicial, you know, anti bias until I got to California and I was told by Zeke Owen that I was bad luck that I had to put my tattoo machines down because, you know, I would be a destructive force in tattooing. Well, you know, when you really look at it logically, and I was working at at uh, Zeke's uh, you know, shop at the time, when you look at that realistically, it was a threat to his economic well-being because, you know, all of the two clients were military. So here you have all these sailors or Marines and they've been, you know, sequestered with other men all of, you know, the weeks or months that they've been kept away from women and females. And so, you know, if a woman was sitting in a tattoo shop men would circle the shop in a line waiting to get a tattoo by this woman because whether, no matter what she looked like, whether she was old or fat or ugly, it didn't matter. Uh, she was a girl, and so she was a novelty number one, and she, could re- she would talk to them like their mother, their grandmother, their aunt, their sister, their girlfriend, their wife, whatever. And so they were more attracted to that, uh, you know, that artist than, say, you know, just getting another tattoo by another guy. So I can understand why I was resisted, but at the same time, I was strongly resisted. And uh, and I had to, like, sneak into Zeke's shop and tattoo during military paydays after he was tired of tattooing and ran off to work at the dog or to play at the dog uh, racing, you know, park or the horse racing stables or whatever he was doing. Uh, and Michael and I would help you know, keep the shop alive. So, uh, yeah, that's when I started seeing the bias. Mm-hmm. Then when I went to work for uh, Jack Rudy in Tattoo Land, that was a whole other story because I was told that if I wanted to work there, I had to learn to pee standing up. If I wanted to be one of the boys, I was going to be one of the boys. And that meant that I had to actually learn to pee standing up. Recently, Jack is resisting that story. He's telling people... No, I. You know, he came up to me one day after at one of these, uh, you know, these uh, 
premieres of Tattoo Land, and he's saying, uh, no, Kate, I didn't really tell you you had to learn to be standing up to be one of the boys. That was, I think that was your idea. I said, yeah, Jack, that was my idea. My idea was to stand in a bathroom and have piss running down my legs and stand in a pool of it so that I could learn to pee standing up so I could, you know, join in with one of you guys. You know, that was my idea. You betcha. <laughs> you know, it's so funny how, you know, he wants to change this now to make it, you know, more politically correct or I don't know, take his, you know, take his uh, bias out of it or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I had to go through a lot to do what I, I like to do. Well, hey, all stories uh, over time seem to get embellished a little bit by the tellers. So that's not, that's not always a bad thing. But uh, before before you were out in California, when you were still in New York, what was the what was the culture of that time when you guys that it was essentially you guys were tied into the art culture with photography with Mike and and uh, right. doing the tattooing. What was what was it like being there at that time with tattooing oh. illegal and and things and and new york fucking city you know uh, i was awesome when i first got to new york i was hanging out with andy warhol and uh you know his whole factory group i was very pretty at that time you have to remember i had been a model in la and surfer girl i was like this california embodiment of you know uh, healthy living i was a hippie i'd gone to monterey pop festival you know i was uh I w and I've always known who I was, you know, and I had this real like dark hair and it was, you know, in a very uh, geometric cut and I had all these mod clothes from uh, London influence and uh, yeah, I was a very attractive girl and so um, I got uh, one of the first nights in New York, I wound up at uh, Max's Kansas City, which was the hottest club in New York. And, of course, Warhol had his huge uh, round uh, table there with Bridget Polk and uh, Nico and uh, Lou, what's his name, the guy from um, uh, the underground, Velvet Underground, they were all there. And he was, all of his movie people were there. And so I was kind of accepted into that crowd. So, uh, and then I got a job at an advertising agency. I was very good at what I did as far as being a typographer, a graphic illustrator, and a uh, creative. So I was placed in a very high-powered advertising agency. I was running around with other models like Lauren Hutton, Pat Cleveland. Um, you know, I was, it was running around in mini skirts, real hot, tight little body, um, you know, uh, and then all of this magic happening in New York. New York was not like it is now. I love New York. I still go there every once in a while, but it's very angry. Now it's all just hustle and bustle. 50% of what you make in New York now goes to your income. Our apartments were luxurious uh, for $135 a, a month, um, you know, in the West Village. I uh, met Malone, fell madly in love with him. Uh, you know, it was the days when it was so much kinder, so much prettier. Uh, junkies would rob you. There were a lot more junkies on the streets then than there are now. But, you know, if they robbed you, they would give you, you'd say, oh, you know, you'd get paid. And then the junkie would come up and, you know, tell you that, you know, stick a knife in your face or something and say, you know, give me your money. And uh, you'd say, but, you know, my rent is due. I really, I really need 
you know, some of that money, I've got to pay my bills. And they say, oh, okay, here's half of it. And so they give you half your money back. You know, it was like, it was a really different time. I mean, it, it was, uh, it was really fun. And, uh, those were ex- exciting days. And, and then when Ed started coming and hanging out with Michael and I, we started investigating all the Japanese culture that was around. And so uh, there were Japanese film festivals. There were only three sushi restaurants, I think, at the time in New York. So we weren't discovering all the Japanese food and no drama and, you know, kabuki. And, uh, and then one day Hardy said, I, you know, he would come for like a week at a time every six weeks and hang out with us in our little tattoo parlor that we had built in our, in our, in our home and uh, in our little apartment. And he, and Cliff Raven would come and sit in for a week at a time. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And then, uh, you know, uh, Ed came and said, you know, uh, there's this guy, Kuniyoshi. He did all these incredible uh, woodblock prints. We should go to the Springfield, uh, Massachusetts Museum because they have a, a huge, you know, stockpile of these prints. So, I mean, imagine doing this today. We said, okay. So we drove up to Springfield, Massachusetts, and uh, we go to the museum and we say, we, we understand that you have a lot of Kuniyoshi original woodblock prints in your possession. Could we please come in and take photographs of them? And they said, oh, sure. So they, Michael had like a, a copy stand with lights. And uh, he and Ed and I went into this room with these huge oak or, I don't know, walnut or cherry. I don't know what kind of beautiful wood, you know, um, horizontal filing cabinets. Drawer after drawer after drawer full of these original Kuniyoshi prints. And Ed would take one out and He'd hand it to Michael, and Michael would put it on the copy stand and take a photograph of it, and then I would take it and put it back in the drawer. And we did this kind of circular uh, photographic uh, kind of uh, marathon all afternoon until we were so exhausted we couldn't take any more photographs of these slides, of these prints. And they didn't even watch us. Every once in a while, somebody would stick their head in and say, are you doing okay? And we'd be like, yeah, we're fine, thank you. And then they'd leave us alone with all <laughs> these prints. <laughs> I still have all these slides of these Kuniyoshi prints, which is another book I would like to do. But, I mean, can you imagine? At this? They had no idea what they had. Uh, we were just discovering what they had. And they just left us alone with this gold mine of these prints. We could have walked out with a thousand of them and they would have never even known. Of course, we wouldn't have. But, you know, that was it was just a different time and era. And, you know, it reminds me of a story that Sailor Jerry told me, if you want to see how different things have changed. You know, Jerry was a great uh, uh, practical joker. He just loved to cause trouble. In fact... I'm going to make the Sailor Jerry uh, frames from uh, the mold that I have that he and Des Conley made for what Malone then made and called the Bulldog. Jerry never called them the Bulldog. Jerry called them the Troublemaker. And so I'm going to revive that uh, name for these machines that I'm going to cast. But anyway, uh, Jerry was an ultimate troublemaker. And uh, he loved to work on... uh, 
subsailors, and they're insane. Subs- people who live underground and underwater for months at a time to with each other in little tiny you know, compartments have to be absolutely insane. So anyway, not to insult them. I'm sorry if I'm insulting anyone, but I think they're a little bit odd. So anyway, Jerry loved to work with these guys, and they were extreme uh, personalities. And <laughs> there was a battle. There was a feud going on between these two subs that were in dry dock in Honolulu. And Jerry just loved to cause trouble. So one night, uh, unbeknownst to anyone, Jerry didn't like to um, broadcast his antics. He took a gallon of paint, pink paint, like or five gallons, I guess it was, must have been, bright pink paint. And he went to the dry dock area where these two subs were sitting getting repaired without any security around these things. He painted the ass end of one of these subs bright pink and then trailed the pink over to the other sub so it looked like the other sub had done it and then sat back and watched (laughs) the ensuing feud go on. (laughs) Now, can you imagine doing something like that in this day and age where you could go paint the ass end of a submarine bright pink and then, you know, and get away with it? Your ass would end up in Guantanamo Bay. (laughs) (laughs) Is the, the time the, around that time that you guys were taking those uh, photographs of the Kuniyoshi Prince? Is that uh, that same period where you guys got called to the Council of the Seven and ended up at that trip out in Hawaii? Yeah. With how, how did that come about? That that trip out there that um, connected kind of the East and the West. Well, we were good friends with Hardy. Hardy had been coming over and uh, you know working with us and. Uh, we had uh, done the muse- we had been in correspondence with Jerry uh, and uh, Paul Rogers and you know Don Nolan and uh, Kazuo Gori uh, through Ed basically um, to solicit their information, their photographs, their drawings for this Museum of American Folk Art show that we were producing in New York City, and uh, Jerry always believed that his work belonged in museums and in galleries. He believed that what he was doing, and, and rightfully so, was uh, true American art, not, uh, you know, kitsch uh, refrigerator magnets and crap. But anyway, he uh, was, after we did the show, out of gratitude, Jerry wanted to meet us. You know, Jerry never left the island, and he was a very difficult man to meet, even if he went there and made the pilgrimage. I mean, there's a great story where Steve Gilbert, who's a historian, shows up. I was there in the studio with Jerry when Steve showed up to, you know, interview Jerry like you're doing with me now. And Jerry threw him out. Said, this isn't a fucking museum. You know, this is, I'm not going to tell you anything, you know, and threw him out. Um, to meet Jerry was very difficult. He did not... He did not believe in marketing. He did not believe in, uh, you know, public relations, even though he believed that his work warranted greater exposure and respect. So when we did this show at the Museum of American Folk Art, that sort of, he felt indebted to us a little bit, I think. And that was one reason he was, he was able to sort of circumvent his prejudicial bias against me as a female and against all of us as young people. He felt that we had done something for him and for tattooing that 
it sort of exceeded anything that anybody else had done by putting his work on a serious museum wall and, you know, treating it with respect and treating it, you know, as fine art. And so uh, that's when he decided he wanted to gather us sort of all together for a little group meeting at his home. Uh, it's been called the first international tattoo convention. Some people say it was just more of a gathering. But it was uh, Jerry, of course, and and then Ed, and then Michael, and me, and then um, Des Conley, who was Jerry's partner at the time making the machines, Kazuo Gori, and then Jerry's shop girl, who was basically eye candy for him at the at the time, a, a magnet to get sailors to come and, and hang around, and, and Mickey, who was a beautiful girl, and I got to hang out with her a lot after everybody vacated the, the islands. But we all flew over, Ed and, and Michael and I flew over and uh, hung out with Jerry at his home. And, and Kazuo was probably the, the most uh, prolific at that time in, in tattooing all of us. We were all supposed to get tattoos. Uh, but Kazuo tattooed Ed's back, and then he tattooed uh, Michael's arm, and then he tattooed Sailor Jerry. And then after about five days, it all fractured, fell apart, and um, and everybody went home except me. I got to stay with him and hang out and tattoo with him. And, w- and what was that like after just spending, you know, days there watching, you know, an amazing Japanese tattoo or tattoo, and I'm sure having long discussions about tattoo, what was it like then sitting in in Jerry's shop, a little tiny, you know place filled with you know what is history now um and you know being around a guy who is in our um estimation brought tattooing spearheaded the what tattooing is today you know brought it to um you know with the help of you and and mike and and ed and um but he kind of brought those two that to the forefront what was it like sitting in there for those weeks um, watching him work and, and being a part of that? Well, uh, as far as working with us, watching Kazuo, you know, it was, we stayed at Jerry's home. Louise, his widow at the time, had moved to, had taken the kids, the two children, uh, David and Cheryl, to Florida to visit her parents. And so we all stayed in Jerry's house. And Jerry slept on the couch, and uh, Michael and I had one bedroom, and Kazuo and, I guess, Ed slept in the other bedroom. I can't remember, but I think that's probably how that went. Um, and then we would all go to Jerry's shop, you know, in the um, in the daytime. And Kazuo did a lot of tattooing at Jerry's home, too. That's where he tattooed Michael's arm. To me, it was... Well, you have to understand where I was from, where I was at that time. I was just this young girl who was in the middle of the most fascinating group of people I had I could ever imagine being around. I mean, I was I was in awe all the time. I was constantly mesmerized. I was I was very lucky from a very early age and I think this is the influence of my family, my uncle in particular, who taught me that the best way to be was to um, and what I say now to everybody is keep your mouth and your, your mouth shut and your eyes and ears open, and I would I would just listen and and watch. Um, I was pretty shy. Um, I was pretty insecure. I was uh, 
uh, frightened a lot of the time. <laughs> I was scared to death, actually, uh, you know, because I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I knew how precarious my situation was. I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I didn't want to, to do the wrong thing. I wanted to uh, earn the respect of these people and uh, to, uh, to continue to watch this magic unfold for me. And it was. It was, it was absolutely magical uh, to watch Kazuo tattoo Michael and my, watch Michael fall asleep while he was getting this entire sleeve outlined, um, you know, and just listening to the little sticky sounds in this warm, you know, Honolulu home. Um, it, it was, um, there's nothing that, I don't, words fail me to say, you know, how I, how wonderful that was. And then uh, to, to be able to stay with Jerry in that little hot um, shop where it was so humid, but the air smelled of tuberose and jasmine and gardenias and, you know, just incredible fragrance coming in. And, and then sailors, these handsome young men about my age coming in with these very fit bodies, you know. I would sit in the corner and just watch Jerry work. Um, you know, it was, it was, uh, again, just, I was, I don't know how to even explain how wonderful that was. And, and Jerry was such a comedian and such a, a funny, uh, and smart, just incredibly intelligent man. I was going to say, you, I, I was going to say, you not only got to see him work and tattoo and watch what this, this thing that had become interesting to you and and had caught you um but you also got to see his salesmanship and his and his personality come through and how he conducted himself in the shop which is probably a really cool thing i mean being that he was kind of a a a troublemaker in in as you said and but had a had a great salesmanship to him as well i've read some stuff that you wrote about him in there and it didn't matter if it was a, a drunk sailor or you know, a young co-ed as it was written, but he had a way with either of them and that it was probably neat to see that. Oh yeah. He was, uh, he could sell snow to the Eskimos basically. I mean, he knew exactly what to say at any given moment to anybody who walked through the door. Uh, he wasn't a shyster. He wasn't somebody who, um, I mean, he was he was sixty three or sixty four years old at that time. I mean, he was at the top of his game. You know, uh, there are a lot of things about Jerry that people don't know, and um, I don't know if I'm really supposed to say them. Uh, but you know, Jerry had uh, Jerry had his way to do whatever he wanted. Jerry got what he wanted. Jerry just knew how to get around everything. He knew how to manipulate the world to make it work for him. Uh, and uh, it was many times outside the bonds of what we would consider even uh, legal. You know, uh, there was a reason he was able to tattoo that monkey's ass. You know, uh, have you ever tried to shave a monkey and tattoo its ass? You know, uh, how would you do that? How would you do that? There's a good question. How would you get that done? Jerry knew how to get that done. Jerry knew how to tattoo an entire back piece in five days on Jim Moore, that incredible tattoo that is so intricate and so completely 
uh, dense of that blue green dragon with all that environment. How did he do? How did he do that in five consecutive days? Because Jim Moore flew over to Hawaii to get that from Jerry. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that back piece. I saw that back piece at Inkslinger's Ball a handful of years ago, maybe around, had to have been around 97, 98. I saw that back piece, and it still looked amazing. Right. Well, those are some of the photographs that are coming out in my book, close-ups of sections of that, and the front that he did on Jim Tool, on Dr. Orr as well. Um, there is a way that he could accomplish that, you know, that uh, if I, I, I can't even say it out loud because if I did, I would raise a whole beehive of controversy. But I know because I watched it and Jerry told me and I, you know, used to have the implements that he used to achieve those things. So I don't have them any longer. I have photographs of them, but I don't have them any longer. I will only say his his wife was a nurse, so she had access. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. But uh, you know, it would help. You know, tattoo a monkey's ass. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that's amazing. What great and interesting times. Oh yeah. In that little tiny tattoo shop right beyond interesting i mean it was beyond interesting. it was going to another planet as far as interesting is concerned i mean not to correct you with your your verbiage there but it was it was so magical it was so magical and then his feminographics you know uh all the little free tattoos that he did on girls he investigated and knew how to do uh single needle tattooing prior to anybody in in developing it in tattoo land or in east like East L.A., excuse me, or in prison, you know, he developed it in full color, tiny, intricate, little tiny tattoos for surfer girls. And he would do them for free between three and five on any day, as long as the girl would come in, get it on her pubic area, and then take her panties off and let him take a picture. That was the price they paid. And I watched him do those. And he was, he knew exactly what, I mean, it was, he, he was so Oh, man. I have to, I wish I could maybe transport the image that I have in my brain to a video so people could actually watch how he did that. But let's just say the the girls were very happy to do it, uh, and they were very happy when they left. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's amazing. It's uh, It sounds, I mean, as you tell the story, it you know, it's... It's great to hear because there's, I've talked about it on the podcast before. There's, there's crazy things happening at tattoo shops and, and all around the world every day. And it's, it's so cool to hear that, you know, nonsense was going on back then too, you know, from the beginning. uh, Oh yeah. More, more so than now. And it was innocent though. Right. It was really innocent. The spirit of it was, is, is great. That's the nice thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was very mischievous. It was a win-win on everybody's part. Um, I really can't say much more about the feminographics or publish the pictures that I have until after Louise passes because I think it would be better that that not happen. She's like 79 years old now, and so, you know, I don't think that uh, she she turned a blind eye to it while it was going on, and I think we should continue to do that until, you know, at some time, in the future, though, I'd like to 
pass on some of the information that I have that might be hurtful to her, basically, I would guess I would say. Yeah. Did, um, did that same um, kind of mischievous vibe that, that was going on at, in Hawaii at that time, when you went back, did you go back to New York or did you go to L.A. after, after that time that you spent with Jerry? Oh, we went back to, we had moved by then. We had moved to uh, San Diego to work with Ed Hardy. And so we went back to San Diego and we stayed with, uh, with Ed. Well, no, we didn't stay with Ed. We got our own house and everything at that point in time in San Diego. And we went to work with Zeke. And uh, then, um, and so, you know, that's a whole other, <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole other hornet's nest right there. And then, uh, and then Jerry died about six months later. And then um, I, we needed money to uh, buy Jerry's estate. We were offered Jerry's estate. Um, we were, Zeke was, and Ed was. Ed, by that time, had uh, negotiated a situation with Kazuo and moved to Japan. And so he was not interested in moving back to Hawaii and taking over Jerry's shop. And Zeke, Zeke just is Zeke and didn't want to. And then, um, and so I, we didn't have any money because we had just moved cross country from New York. We were struggling artists in the first place. And then we got to San Diego and had just been there a few months when we went to Hawaii. And so we had moved cross country. We really didn't have very much money. Uh, we were both struggling tattoo artists. So when Jerry passed, we didn't have, um, really anything, any, you know, what do you call those, nest eggs. We didn't have any money put away. So I went to my family who were wealthy and asked for the money to make the down payment on Jerry's shop. And so that's how we were able to uh, to move to Hawaii and purchase Jerry's estate or his shop, his business in the shop. And, uh, and we took it over then. And you guys stayed in, stayed in Hawaii and tattooed their for for how long until you ended up because you were you were there at that time was that all the same time that everything was happening down in LA with the black and gray stuff and that came later or Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that came I think uh the black and gray stuff started around 1976 uh of course people had been poking black and gray single needle in prison for years you know, making their own tattoo machines and their own equipment and everything for a very long time. So that was also a bubble of sort of underground that was being kept away from the public eye, much like me starting in New York. But uh, Michael took over the shop, uh, basically did a lot of the tattooing during the military or during, you know, the weeks. During the weeks, I became a dancer again, and I went off and uh, managed a newspaper uh, called Sunbums, which is now starting to raise up, rise up out of uh, Facebook. If you want to go to Facebook, you can look at Sunbums Hawaii, which is a great uh, page there. And I sort of became involved again in my graphic design writing career. I was tattooing on weekends during military paydays because that was the only time I was actually ne- needed. Civilians weren't still coming and getting tattoos, even surfer girls or the hippies or whatever. They weren't really branching out yet and so I was pretty much tattooing part-time during weekends when military payday was happening but during the rest of the time I was managing a rock and roll newspaper and hanging out with people like Jeff Beck and uh, Eric Clapton and uh, Paul McCartney and 
Stevie Nicks and so forth. So I kind of launched a few careers there uh, that of people who have gone on and done magnificent stuff and uh, honed my writing skills and more and worked more with graphics. And then Michael and I, because I wasn't really tattooing all the time, there was I was kind of denied the ability to come in other than when I was really needed because of my, there was, a, you know, again, it's like, you know, I'm a female, so I get a lot of attention. I'm, I'm an attractive female, so I get a lot of attention. I'm a smart female, so I get a lot of attention. And I'm a talented woman, so I get a lot of attention. So a lot of men who have egos that I've heard about, I've heard about the male ego, um, pretty much um, resisted my presence because, and that would include Malone. And especially when I was stupid and saying things like, tattooing is better than sex. Well, of course, he would mean read that to me, and it's better than sex with him. So, you know, he started to get really resistant about me. People would say, oh, I just saw Kate do the best tattoo I've ever seen in my life. Tattooing and drawing was hard for him. He struggled, and so he became very insecure. And then I found out he was having sex with women who were coming through the shop. And I said, I'm out of here. So I called Ed who was our friend, and I said, listen, Ed, I, I need to leave the islands. And he said, well, you can come and work for me. Because I, he had uh, realistic tattooing, and he had realistic tattoo, and he also had Tattoo City in San Francisco. So that's when I moved back to the Bay Area and worked with him for a while. And then, um, and then he bought um, tattoo, he bought Good Time Charlie's. Charlie what, you know, had started this whole brought it to the streets of this black and gray single needle with Jack Rudy, and then they brought in Freddie Negrete. So there was this whole now movement Ed, that had become enamored with uh, by virtue of going to the, um, the Reno Tattoo Convention and seeing these guys walking around with this black and gray work. And so Ed immediately, the way Ed is, jumped on that bandwagon, wanted to, uh, you know, um, uh, just get into that wholeheartedly because he saw that there was a great deal of potential. It was very beautiful work, and uh, these guys were doing it in a way that was new and novel. So he decided to, uh, you know, uh, jump in on that. And then Charlie, I think Charlie saw that it was really exploding around him, and he, I think, was a little bit afraid of that success. I don't think he knew really how to to handle it, and so. Charlie pretty much had what is termed now, I guess, a spiritual um, revelation and decided he didn't want to be in it anymore. So he wanted to sell his shop and Ed didn't want to see it die. So Ed bought the shop. He bought the original Good Time Charlie's and said, Kate, I want you to go down there and help, you know, keep your eye on these guys. And also, uh, you know, uh, Knew that, learned this new style. He trusted me and said, I want you to go down there and do that. So I kind of went down there as kind of like a covert in, agent for Hardy to make sure that these guys showed up to work on time, that they weren't like, you know, they were, you know, kind of keeping it straight. Well, um, a month after Ed bought the name Good Time Charlie and the shop, Captain Jim, who had owned the shop at the Pike, heard that Charlie was out of the picture and that Ed had bought the business, he went around 
Hardy and got to the landlord and bought the building that Good Time Charlie was sitting in and evicted us. Said, okay, you know, I'm going to own Good Time Charlie's now, so you guys are out. So we had 30 days. Uh, We went to the lawyer, tried to see what we could do. I remember that meeting really clearly. Um, The lawyer said, well, anything that is hammered down is the landlord's property or the owner now, Captain Jim. But anything that can be unscrewed is personal property, and you can take that with you. So we dismantled everything out of the shop, uh, the original Good Time Charlie shop, and Ed found this little tiny building for rent just down the street uh, called, uh, well, it was a car lot. It looked like a little, you know, peaked building. It still stands there. I just visited it the other day when I was in L.A. Um, huge parking lot there on Whittier Boulevard between uh, Atlantic and Garfield, and uh, and Ed rented that, and we I we you know we built uh, the stations, we mudded the walls. You know, my stepfather was a carpenter, so I helped do actually the construction, uh, and we built Tattoo Land, and uh, then opened it with uh, Jack, Freddie, and me, and then Ed would come down like every week for you know a couple of days and visit us and sit in and and keep his eye on it too and then that's what happened i started working at good time charlie or at uh, tattoo land which jack always loves to call the original good time charlie's tattoo land but it was renamed tattoo land and so i sat there for two years and learned black and gray chicano tattooing a utah farm girl as i said in the in the movie uh tattoo nation a Utah farm girl, you know, schooled in Sailor Jerry, strong traditional work, you know, winding up doing single needle tattooing with two of the best single needle artists on the planet, trying to, you know, keep my uh, head above water and uh, try to, you know, approximate that style. What was it like there as a, as a <laughs> female artist? I mean, <laughs> that's, now... That's what- to stand up. Uh, that's where I learned being standing up. <laughs> right. What was it? You know, now it's more out in, out in the open. You're out of New York now. Things are progressing. And you're there in, in East L.A. Right. You know, Los Angeles as a, as a female artist. How was that? What kind of roadblocks did you, did you have to jump through uh, over to get, get out of that one? Man, talk about a fish out of water. I mean, my God. You know, this is a this is like little Mexico. I mean, there is no, you know, there's no English spoken. I mean, everybody there is, you know, pure Mexican, speaking Spanish only. Uh, you know, and I'm very white, you know, and a girl. Uh, it was terrifying. I mean, there. this is in the heart of all of the gang members. There's 27 gangs that are violent. I mean, people killing each other on the street, shooting each other, knifing each other. Okay, the third night that we were there, Ed and I are at 3 o'clock in the morning watching Freddie finish a tattoo. Now, at the original, uh, you know, Charlie's shop, there was no phone. They didn't have a phone in the tattoo shop. And actually, we tattooed in a cage. It was uh, orange jail bars that went from floor to ceiling that kept the artists safe from the people who came into the shop. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called The, the Assassination and Persecution, or The, per, the, the uh, 
persecution and assassination of Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates at Charbour. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a film. It's a great film by the Royal Shakespearean Company. It's one of the best movies ever made. I love it. But anyway, it's where these insane people in this insane asylum climb the, bo- the, the bars and the walls to get, you know, to just, you know, it's like any violent prison situation. Okay, that's what it was like to go to work at Good Time Charlie's. When we would go to work at 6 o'clock, we would open the gates, we would go in. It was a huge L-shaped room, or U-shaped room, actually, and the cage was in the center. And it was these orange floor-to-ceiling bars uh, that you had to get buzzed in to where the workstations were. And there was a pretty good-sized shop. Uh, and we had a young guy there named Pepe who was also the shop guy. Okay, so we would show up at 6 o'clock, and we'd go in. It was fairly quiet. We'd go in, and we'd get into the cage. And then the doors to the shop would open, and there would be a flood of these Chicano citizenry coming in. The women, I mean, I had some Japanese training by this time, but the women looked like kabuki masks. They had these high black eyebrows arched and painted on their foreheads with these white areas underneath and then huge black eyeliner and beauty marks and high black bouffant straight hair coming in and the men all wore a uniform as well of like flannel shirts with one button at the top flowing over a wife beater or a white t-shirt pressed Chicano jeans or or slacks and Stacy Adams shoes and they with hair nets with little tiny like spider web looking you know, knots on their forehead to keep their hair flat and straight. They would come in and just, you know, with all this Spanish, sticking their arms through the bars, explaining to me what they wanted. Just these arms coming through these bars. And there was like a flood of them every night. And then we'd pick a client, you know, and then they'd bring them in. And I didn't really know how to do single needle tattooing. It was a whole new school for me. And so I was struggling learning how to do this with acetate stencils, charcoal, not thermofax, acetate stencils with every line of the peacock feather drawn in. So there would just be this blur of carbon over somebody's arm or every hair on this head, you know, uh, just etched in this mass of carbon. Oh, my God. So the third night, we're there one night, uh, you know, after I had decided we had to relocate and Ed had found the new shop. We decided we were going to dismantle the old shop and we were going to build this new little place. We all, there was me and Hardy and uh, Psycho Joe, who was a roadie for the Allman Brothers, who was also a tattoo artist at the time, and some young man named Horse, who was an inmate in prison, but knew Single Needle pretty well. Uh, we all went down and rented ho- motel rooms and all stayed in a motel for the month that we were going to renovate this new shop and build, you know, build it out. Okay, so there's me and Hardy and there's Jack and there's Freddie tattooing some client at three in the morning. And Freddie's got his homeboys sitting there on the floor. They look like piles of dirty laundry, basically. They're just sitting there on the floor with just hanging out. And when Freddie's finished with the tattooing, they go out the back door 
And I let this client of Freddie's been tattooing out the front door, which was a floor-to-ceiling glass door. And I open the door, let him out, close the door, lock it, and hear these horrifying screams, just shrieks. And I take my hands and I shield so I can see better out the glass. And I see that the three men that have been sitting on our floor dancing around this client who has just been released from our shop. And I can see the glint of the the straight-edge razors in the moonlight, and they're slicing his neck. And they sliced his neck seven times to to the bone, basically, and then ran off. And he's lying there on our stoop in a pool of blood. And Freddie's out the back door to disappear because it's his homeboys that did it. And Jack is out the back door to try and find somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning on Whittier Boulevard to make a phone call to get 911. And this kid's ride home is his cousin. And he is waiting in the car on the street that is deserted. And he gets his friend up and takes him out to the car. And at that time, a deputy sheriff drives by. And he flags him down, gets the kid to the hospital. The kid is in the coma for months, trying to, you know, rebuild his blood and everything. And we've got a pool of blood <laughs> on our doorstep. The, of course, it's called in as a crime situation. And uh, the, the cops come. And there's Ed, <laughs> Mr. Ed Hardy, <laughs> and Mr. Pretender to be a Chicano uh, tattoo artist, you know, just inherited this ball of wax you know, Mr. Art School from San Francisco Art Institute uh, with his realistic custom tattoo shop in San Francisco and me, Little Miss Farm Girl, standing there trying to describe to the cops what happened in this mayhem of this blood bath that is on our doorstep. That was my initiation to uh, tattoo land or to East L.A., basically. Um, We... uh, I, I went to Jack's. I was staying at Jack Rudy's house at the time with his wife, uh, Debbie. And I, you know, and they kept, the cops kept, we didn't know anything. And we're not going to turn in Freddie. And Freddie's not there because, of course, he's disappeared because he's not going to say anything. He's, you know, a 20-year-old gangbanger. You know, and Jack, he's not saying anything. And so uh, it's Hardy and I trying to <laughs> explain what's going on. Uh, so I uh, slept in. I, I go back to Jack's house, and at one in the afternoon, there's a phone call for me, and it's Ed, and he's like, "Where the f- where are you?" And I'm like, uh, "I didn't think I had to go in today." He said, "Are you kidding?" He said, "We're supposed to open at eleven o'clock. You get down there and clean up all that blood." So that's what I did. Went down and uh, cleaned up all the blood off the stoop, which was impossible. You can't clean up blood off of concrete, as you probably well know. Uh, at least we didn't have the. Uh, the uh, you know the know-how to do something like that. So the stain remains, or it did until I guess that side, piece of sidewalk was destroyed. But that's uh, that's that was my initiation into um, tattoo land and that culture. Um, I started the day shift. I would go into work at ten o'clock in the morning. I lived not far down the street in, uh, in a singles complex in Pico Rivera. And I would drive to work every day and uh, open the shop at 10 a.m. with my heart in my throat, uh, never knowing what was going to happen in this little tiny shop. And then Jack and Freddie would show up at 6 o'clock 
Uh, and then I would stay and work their shifts with them so I could learn how to do what I was supposed to be doing. You know, I mean, I was just stumbling my way through this whole new field of how to, you know, not lacerate somebody with a single needle like it's a razor, you know, and trying to make something that actually stayed. And, you know, they're accomplished. So here I have to, like, struggle to get to this level. And so I would stay every night until 3 or 4 in the morning and then go home, sleep, get up, come back to work. That was my life. And every once in a while on Saturday night, I would drive my little van into uh, Hollywood and catch uh, some kind of, you know, music. Because there was, you know, the Whiskey A Go-Go there and the Roxy and all these great clubs. So I would, and I love music. So it was great for me. And I had worked for a rock and roll promoter for several years there in Hawaii. So I knew a lot about it. So I would, um, you know, go enjoy some of the music that happened in L.A. But then I would be right back in Chicano uh Gang banging, uh, you know, tattoo uh, shop. Yeah, tattoo shop. Uh, you know, what twenty was, hours a day. Yeah. What was uh? What was one of the best shows you saw during that time? Oh well, definitely Bruce Springsteen. And then uh, I got to the whiskey one night, and uh, the place was closed. They wouldn't let me in, even though everybody knew who I was because I went there as often as I did. Uh, and they said, "No, no, it's a private event." And uh, then. I stood outside and hung around a little bit. Finally, they let me in with a group of other people, and it was an A&R show for the police. It was the first time the police had ever played in America, and it was for A&R, you know, you know, from the industry, artists and, you know, representatives. So I got to see uh, the police for the first time. They played in the USA, and, you know, they had little police whistles and little badges on the tables, and it was one of those PR events, you know. And it was the first time I saw Sting, you know, in his little jumpsuit and um, his suspenders and stuff. And they already had a string of hits, so, you know, they were good. And then I got to see the Talking Heads when they were a trio at, uh, you know, and I got to see them up close and personal in an afternoon program, but Bruce, oh, and then, God, then I got to see Bob Marley play at the uh, Burbank Amphitheater, which was a very small venue with, a th you know, all the Rastafarians in the area with, I mean, that was a, that was a spectacle to see all these people come out of the woodwork with their dreads and their colorful costumes and, they, Bob Marley was playing on uh, Friday night, and then the Stones were playing on Saturday. The Stones' big event in An Anaheim, you know, the Dodger Stadium. So I had tickets to both. So I, I go to the Marley concert. Well, Peter Tosh was opening for the Stones on their tour, their USA tour, and he, of course, had been with Marley and the Whalers. So he, as a surprise guest, shows up at, Marley's concert um, and it just turned into a Whalers reunion show which was a phenomenon it was just it was amazing the cloud of marijuana smoke was just like you couldn't see them performing for as much you know grass as they were blowing at that show and it was just it was it was so much fun I had and so then I drive to Anaheim I'm like okay I could go to sleep for two hours and I'm all jacked up from this show or I can sleep in the parking or stay in the parking lot with every other Stones fanatic and have that experience so I did I went to the Anaheim Dodger Stadium um, parking lot and stayed out all night and then it's uh, nine in the morning or six in the morning we all rushed the gates you know to get good seating for the uh, Stones show 
And so there were thousands of people behind me crushing me in this mass. I was one of the first thousand people to get through those uh, those gates. Uh, something I'll never do again. But, um, you know, it was a uh, once-in-a-lifetime experience. But, yeah, I saw some, I saw some great... Uh, some great entertainment during that time. But uh, working at night with Jack and Freddie was the very best. I went back to uh, school. I went back to Rio Hondo Community College for art classes uh, and, uh, you know, sort of learned more about graphic arts and design and took some more classes there. And, uh, and so that was, that was really, uh, that was a great time. I was thrown up against the wall one day I was sitting there by my, when I first got there, uh, when I, we, Tattoo Land had first opened, excuse me, when Tattoo Land had first opened, um, I was there alone during the day <clears throat> and uh, three, you know, Chicano guys come in, two big dudes and one little guy with a little hair now with a little spider sitting in his forehead and stuff and uh and the two big ones pick me up and throw me against the wall. And my feet aren't even touching the floor. And uh, this little one gets in my face. And I knew his name was Popeye. Somebody called him Popeye. And he puts his face right in mine. He says, listen, he said, and I can't approximate that it would be an insult for me to try to do the, the accent. But he was like, we have enough people in our neighborhood fucking up our you know, our people with, the, you know, not knowing what they're doing. And, you know, we have other, you know, we have good artists. These people are here are good. He said, um, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you come from. But I'm going to tell you that you you better be down. You better not, uh, you know, be one of these that's going to, you know, screw up our, our homies, you know. He said, um, because if not, you're going to lose your thumbs. And, um pretty much just got right in my face and barked that out. And so I said, I'm, I'm going to be down. I promise you I'm going to be down. Now put me down, you know. So uh, they left. <clears throat> and about maybe a few months later, Tattoo Land became, you know, the, the people at the other, the Good Time Charlie's Captain Jim's shop were not good artists. They did not know what they were doing. They were all, you know, really violating some of the ethical standards that I hold dear in my heart. And they were not really doing good work. So everybody came to Tattoo Land, of course. And so Tattoo Land was super busy. And, you know, we were making our mark. And uh, so I was staying at night working with Jack and taking and Freddie and taking over some of that. We had three stations going all the time. And by this time, I was fairly confident in what I was doing. I could do little things like roses. Anyway, um, uh, one night a client was going to get tattooed by me, and it was still really, really unusual to see women tattooing. And so this one um, man going to get a tattoo for me said, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think uh, I want her to do it. I don't think she's uh, strong enough is what he said. I don't think she's strong enough to do this tattoo. And from the back of the room I hear, no. No, homie, it's good. She's down. She's down. And I look, and it's this Popeye character giving me the, giving me the thumbs up, giving me the, you know, vote of approval. And so that meant everything to me. Going through, <clears throat> excuse me, going through all that, at what point did the, the little country girl stop being terrified? Oh, hell, I'm still terrified <laughs> all the time. I'm, I'm 
terrified all the time. I mean, you know, I, I don't know that terrified is the word. I'm still insecure. You know, I'm still uh, looking at this world like it's, uh, you know, a playground somehow that I've mistakenly been invited into, you know, and as soon as somebody knows the truth about me, I'm going to be asked to leave. You know, I, I still feel like, you know, I have so much to learn and so much to know and, and, uh, and I, uh, you know, I don't think I'm a fraud. I don't think I'm that, but I, I feel like I'm just so lucky to be invited into this room, you know, and so I'm not terrified, but I am certainly very often, um, always questioning, always questioning, you know, am I going to be good enough? You know, I try really hard to give my clients what they want. And so many of them are happy, but I'm, I'm not stupid. I mean, I can see what the, the competition is and how good they are. And I just, you know, and I can see where my mistakes are. I can see where I, you know, maybe don't make the best choices. And I'm always at night thinking, why did I do that? Why didn't I do that? Why didn't I remember that? Why, you know, I'm always, you know, have, having that headspace. But uh, I'm not terrified, but I'm certainly, you know, feeling very fortunate to still be in, be in this game. Yeah, and to have had those experiences, you know, it's, it's something that I feel fortunate as well to have been able to be in the places and the shops that I've been able to work at in San Francisco, in, you know, mm -hmm. at Picture Machine, at, at Erno's, and, and be around him and, um, you know, have those experiences and that, that culture that has fed my, you know, tattoo journey. It's to have those it's neat to not only look back on that but also you're in a great space now in austin where you can look towards the future too and continue to not only bring tattooing to the forefront but the history of tattooing it's yeah with your books and your and your stories and things like that well that's what i want to do I, I have a lot of stories and i have a lot of information that no one else has i mean let's look at it really really i mean this i this does sound like bravado, but let's look at the truth of it. I mean, you know, who else sat at that membrane between old school and new school with the people who were the giants of the old school and the people who are the giants of the new school? You know, who has that access? Who has those memories? Who has that information? There's no, Ed Hardy does, obviously, you know, uh, but whether he's willing to divulge it or not is up to him, you know. Um, I want to share the information and there's Michael's gone. Zeke doesn't want to do it. I mean, who else is there? And I have a unique, I have a unique, uh, take on it because of being female, you know, and because I started, you know, even before I met Hardy. Yeah. Yeah. There's that great picture of you, um, that you posted on your Facebook, uh, a few weeks back of, Ed and, and Sailor Jerry speaking in that doorway. Right. <laughs> you in the very background, just you know, ghost, like ghost. ghosted in there. Um, and you have to look real, real close to see you. But that it kind of um, possibly was how it was. It was you in the yeah. background there observing, and, and and a fly on the wall at that time. Right. You know, right. being able to take all this in, and how cool is it that you get to you know put it back out in a, in a positive and, and a enlightening way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I uh, I thought that I had taken that picture. I thought that was the day that Hardy took me on a ride up to the poly. Uh, that was the day that uh, Jerry was going to get tattooed by Kazuo Gori, which is another incredible story. But um, I thought, you know, and, and pretty much Hardy is asking Jerry what he wants as a snack, pretty much. And, and so... Uh, I was. I thought I had taken that photograph, but then someone said, "Oh no, you know who's there in the background," and it was me. Yeah. What What was uh, What did Jerry want to get tattooed? Um, Jerry got a peony on his shin by Kazuo Gori, and it's a brutal story. It just it really again points out some of Jerry's uh, <laughs> you know unique. Uh, <clears throat> abilities to manipulate his world um he hated the japanese with a vengeance because of what they did to pearl harbor and to you know the fact that they you know he had you know fought in world war ii and you know he just and ruined his beautiful island he just hated him so uh, but he again had overcome his prejudicial bias by accepting Kazuo as a pen pal and as a friend and invited him to this show, this gathering. But he was going to certainly put Kazuo in his place. And the first way he did it was when uh, we went to collect Kazuo at the airport. And, uh, you know, the Japanese then are very big on saving face or losing face and proper respect for their hosts and so forth. Anybody, you know, to, almost to a fault. Well, Jerry, uh, when we picked Kazuo up at the airport, uh, Jerry didn't speak to Kazuo at all. Didn't say one word to him, which is an insult. Didn't bow to him. Uh, we did. We were all over him, <clears throat> you know, Ed and I and Michael. But uh, we, uh, we all piled into Jerry's uh, four-seater four Thunderbird and took off. And... Uh, the first place Jerry drove to was Pearl Harbor. And we all piled out of the car at Pearl Harbor, and then Jerry spoke and said, Kazuo, this is Pearl Harbor. Just like slap. So then when it was time, but then, you know, he treated him nicely at this house and everything, but then he decided he wanted a tattoo by Kazuo. Okay, so we all go to, we all go to Jerry's tiny little hot tattoo shop, right? Kazuo not really speaking much Japanese. And a hand tattooer, uh, Jerry handles him, hands him, hands him one of the troublemakers, the heaviest tattoo you can find, a tattoo machine. It's like it weighs five pounds. In fact, Jerry had trouble holding it. And you'll see in some of the pictures of this time, you'll see the long string of rubber bands that Jerry had constructed in his workstation to run his clipcord through so that it would take some of the weight off of the machine when he was tattooing. Well, he doesn't let Kazuo use the rubber bands. And he sits down and has Kazuo do a peony on his shin, right on the front of his shin, with this machine that weighs about five pounds and these tiny little delicate Kazuo hands. That are used had, to, and he had never used a machine before, or had he? He was only he might have tattooing. he might have used a Cindy Ray rotary, you know, because the Japanese were using those back in the day. But uh, he had never used 
one of these machines. And, uh, and so Kazuo tries to do, he, he draws the peony on Jerry's shin, beautiful, big, red peony. And then he starts to tattoo, and Jerry howls like a baby through the whole thing, screams at how much it hurts. And then Kazuo does the outline, and then he picks up a shader and is coloring it in, and Jerry makes him stop halfway through because it hurts too badly. Talk about another slap, just pow, right across his face. And here he is, this little Japanese man in this heat and this hot little tattoo shop. I mean, it was mean. It was just mean, you know? But that was, that was Jerry. His way of proving a point. Yeah, his way of proving, you know, America's, you know, Americans, I'm tougher than you. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I can use this big machine. You know, you're just this little Japanese guy who, you know, I, I don't know what his point was really, but, you know. He got back at him. Yeah. He got back at him. Wow. It's, uh, it's amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, what's, uh, during, that, uh, during that three weeks after that, we talked about it a little bit already, but did you, did you see, did Jerry talk much about the, the week that had just uh, taken place, or was he fairly quiet about, um, about that, the time or opening up about, hosting this little, uh, the, the event that he hosted. No, he didn't talk about it much. He, you know, after it was over, it was over and he was ready to go on and do work. And, you know, and so he also did his radio talk show, you know, um, you know, he, he had a lot of irons in his fire, so to speak. Uh, yeah. He didn't talk a lot about that, about the event. He just, uh, you know, went back to work tattooing girls and uh, sailors, and marines. Yep. And uh, you also, you also, um, and made fun of me. <laughs> yeah. What uh, he gave you shit the whole time? Oh yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but in a kind, fatherly way. He looked more at me like I was his daughter. I think more than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a daughter that he would have liked to have had. Right, Ex- accepted into into the fold for a for a time, and and uh, allowed to sit there and and watch in his environment. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I spent the whole time like tracing off all of his stencils, you know, and the flash and everything. I have a huge pile of all of those tracings and all of those drawings um, that I spent the whole time, you know, doing that. That's what he wanted me to do. What do you think it was about his, when you look at his flash and, and the paintings that he did, what do you think it was about his stuff other than he was an, an incredible artist? I mean, very, very, um, oh, yeah. his ability to translate those, you know, the female form into mm-hmm. onto his flash in a simple yet eloquent way. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed like it when his flash when you see his flash around that time it was so much farther ahead than other guys that were doing it you know the the, the other pinups their faces still look broke and you know right. weird weird legs or yeah you know what, what do you think uh what do you think it was about about his painting or about his work that that was it just his care that he took in doing it well, I think that if you look at his designs and his work, 
we're fuzzing out again. If you, if you look at his flash compared to say anyone else's from that period of time, you know, uh, like you say, the dis- the details are meticulous, but he could distill like a little hand into perfection with a little pinky, you know, or the toes or the arc arch of the foot, you know, or the just the cheekbones, the lips, the eyes, the hair, you know, he and even the evolution of his designs from when he started say in the 50s to in the 60s in the late 60s early 70s the transition is you know remarkable to watch how he developed the same images but made them fatter made them fuller made them more fun i think you f- you pick up the element of his sense of humor and his you know and just the grace of his of his hand you know in just a, a rose petal or a leaf, you know, he made them fatter, I think is really the, that's the only thing that I can, that if I were to look and choose one word as to why his designs are better is because they're fatter. They're just more full. full they're, yeah. 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 And it definitely, it definitely does come through. I mean, there is a, a certain feel that comes through in his, in his paintings and even the pictures of his tattoos and, you know, having seen, um, you know, Dr. Orr's body of work, um, there's a, there's a, there's a magic that cut, does come through. And I'm curious to, to know if you, if it was something that you saw him do in particular that he was, that he maybe was putting something extra into it or what, you know, what he was doing. Cause they, man, you do look at that and they have those little things that make such the difference in a design, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the arch of the foot or mm-hmm. like the lips or the eyes or the nose, nose especially, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And he did. He had all those little elements fine-tuned down to, to just what he needed to make it readable and, and work. Um, you know, it, it's, it's what I love to see in those, in those paintings and, and what I love to see about, you know, uh, your work about Mike's work, Mike, you know, uh, Malone had a beautiful style of drawing. You say he, you know, struggled with it, but it comes through. And so it was one of the guys when I first started tattooing, um, that I looked at and I looked at his flash and I said, wow, that's a really, it's a clean, simple, really well-structured way of drawing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, the acetate samples might've had a play in that too, where you have to start from lower right and move up through it so that you don't obliterate the stencil as you're moving and you know working through the design I think there was a formula for you know making these designs a certain way Michael certainly picked up on that formula and knew how to do that Michael was a great study as far he didn't he was tenacious he did not start out as an artist or as a drawer he did not really know how to do that very well but he would work at it night and day uh you know to be, to get better it was something he really wanted to do um you know he hated being poor he saw that tattooing was a way that 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 poverty could be kept at bay and so he was going to be good at it no matter what and and he loved the lifestyle he loved the stories as well you know so um yeah he he made everything fatter as well you know just by making things rounder uh 
you know, I think the the friendliness and the accessibility of moving up through that formula is what really makes those things work. I mean, it's not only just the girls, it's also the roses are round, the leaves are round, the eagles are round, the eyes on the dragon are round, you know. It's it's just that generosity, maybe. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Does uh looking at that old stuff um keep you interested and motivated or is it looking towards a future that keeps you interested and motivated oh uh or you know the future, the future is you know always unknown like the you know the his history is a mystery yesterday you know tomorrow is unknown today is all we have you know i uh, i don't know what the future is i'm a i'm a very optimistic person i you know i believe in fortune i have a great spiritual key uh, to what I call the source or the observer in me who keeps me positive and, uh, you know, and curious. It was my sense of curiosity, first of all, that got me into all this trouble. But, um, you know, I was in a very bad car accident um, in 1989 where I broke all my bones and I had retrograde amnesia. I had swallowing disorder. I basically lost the ability to draw and design anything. Um, I was crippled, uh, had three years of rehab. But during those three years of putting myself back together, the one thing, in all the pain and all the uh, insomnia and all the difficulty was I would take out my Sailor Jerry stencils and I would just look at them over and over again. And there's something healing in those stencils and in those images that allowed me some grace from the pain and the grace from the insomnia and hope for the future. Those, you know, tattooing, if I can say one thing that's important in all of this is that I believe that tattooing is not an art or not a craft or not a practice. It's an energy. It's a source of energy. When I'm tattooing somebody... I'm putting my energy into them, and their energy is flowing back into me. And so, you know, it's the reason why people can get a mediocre tattoo but love it the end of their days because of the energy that they received during that. It's why we seek out certain tattoo artists over and over again because we get that energy. You know, um, we can get a great tattoo but have a terrible experience and, and have bad energy and hate that tattoo. It doesn't mean anything to us because that energy is not there. These stencils hold, it, they, they hold that energy. You know, when they look at the Buddhist scriptures written by Buddha, you know, with the brush, and then the scriptures that are copied by the students, no matter how well the intent of the students when they look at those scriptures, the originals under an electronic microscope, they see those those electrons moving, spinning. But when they look at the the copies of the students, they're dead. They're lying still in the ink. That energy still moves in these stencils. That energy still surrounds me in this in this studio. And by holding those stencils, I I get to feel that energy again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I think that's why, <clears throat> I think that's why we like memorabilia. We like that, um, you know, there is a richness to history and to holding something that has been used, 
um, you know, in a tattoo shop or, you know, it doesn't have to be about tattoo. It can be about anything, an old book or an old, uh, you know, shirt or anything, you know, that, that holds those, uh, vibrations for sure. So, um, what do you think, uh, what do you think, uh, what do you think about Austin? You've been in Texas now for a little while and, uh, what, what's, uh, what's it like down there? I hear Austin is an amazing city for not only, uh, tattooing, but also music. Oh yeah. Austin is live music capital of uh, the world. Um, and there, it's you know you can't go anywhere and not hear a live band, and it's and it's I mean our music palette here is the best that I've ever been in around, except for New York City, I guess, or maybe Los Angeles. But I think it's it's even more so per capita here than anywhere ever else. Everybody's everybody comes here before the music, and the food is awesome. Uh, it's hotter than hell here. You know, it's 118 degrees last year, and we haven't gotten to there yet this year, but it's 105 routinely right now. But that's only for two months. And then, you know, it's glorious. It's, you know, it gets a little chilly in the wintertime, but I love it. I like it being about, you know, 65 degrees. I don't mind that at all. And the, the outdoor is amazing. Austin is an also very liberal town c- compared to the rest of Texas, which is, you know, su- stupidly, you know, uh, red. You know, Austin is a self-contained, self-perpetuating uh, economy. It doesn't rely on anything else from outside of Austin. We grow our own food. You know, uh, we make our own music. We're very handy, crafty people. You know, there's a, it's a, the slogan here is keep Austin weird. Uh, so the weirder you are, actually, the more they love you. Uh, and it's a smart city. And it's, it's big and it's growing by 200 people a day. But it's also very tattoo-friendly. Uh, everybody rides bikes, everybody hikes, everybody runs to the hill country. It's, it's wonderful. I love Austin. And it's, I don't know, in LA, there's a little pocket called Santa Monica, which is kind of a cool little place to be with lots of little trendy shops and little restaurants and, you know, and this is like a gigantic Santa Monica, I guess, if you will. It's, you know, it's just filled with all kinds of eclectic you know, interesting businesses. And people are very nice here. They're very supportive. I love Austin. It's why I chose to live here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just those two months uh, out of the year that it's peaking up yeah. over 105 degrees. That's when you got to travel. And you've been traveling a little bit uh, around here I've, and there uh, out of the country. Oh, yeah, I love to travel. I have a great family of people all over Europe. And uh, now I'm opening up like the you know southeast asia and the philippines and so forth like you know there's so much to see in this world you know and they say that i mean i think it was uh mark twain who said that you know if you don't travel it's like buying a book and reading the same page over and over and over again to me i've been i'm a born traveler uh, i love to travel so i go you know as everywhere as often as possible just give me you know a reason to go somewhere i'm going uh, but I do spend a lot of time traveling through Europe, and I feel like Europe is my second home now. Um, 
And when it's 105, you can bet you're going to find me in Hawaii where I have a license or Alaska where I have a license or Norway where I can tattoo. You know, I'm going to do whatever I can to kind of keep myself cool. But lately, I'm, you know, because I'm building this business, I have to stay around a little bit. And I, I found I've been, I, they took x-rays of my body because I've been a little bit ill and because uh, of age and so forth. And just, you know, you start to fall apart. Um, I find I find that I have a broken kneecap. My kneecap is shattered in two pieces on my left leg. And on my right leg, I broke my hip. Uh, we don't know when I broke my hip because it's calcified and the, the fracture is healed. But it's one reason I kind of walk a little gimpy. So I've got, you know, a broken kneecap on the left leg and a broken hip on the right leg. Plus then I have these four autoimmune diseases that I'm battling. So we're trying to figure out how to get me better. But what I what I do do is go swimming every day for an hour at this beautiful pool where the water is so warm and I just love it. And so I'm getting stronger and so I have no complaints. That's amazing. And you know, it's, uh, it's, such, it's so good to see somebody that has gone through everything that you've gone through, both, um, you know, people might say positive and negative, uh, but it, it's, all, it's all for the best. It's, it, it's all, you know, you can't do anything to change those things, so they're always best, which is why I just got the, the most recent tattoo I got, and I got it touched up uh, last night, is best luck on my knuckles, Us. you know? Us. So that's... Uh, that's it. Kate, I'm so happy that you uh, joined me today, and I would like you to let people know if they, if they have interest in getting a hold of, uh, of you to either get tattooed or get some uh, of the things that you have uh, for sale, books, and, and otherwise. Where can they do that? Well, they can find me on uh, my uh, – well, I have, a, I have a website that's being rebuilt right now, but it'll still have the same you know, address, which is Shanghai Kate's tattoos.com then I'm also available on Facebook uh, by searching my name Shanghai Kate Helen Brand uh, they can email me at dame of the world at aol.com I'm also on Twitter um, I'm going to be on I have an Instagram account I mean my god I cannot keep up with all this you know people are telling me to do Pinterest you know I'm like ah. You know, you do Pinterest about me because I can't do it. I mean, it's like Facebook is about as far as I can go. I mean, even my Instagram is flagging because I really can't, uh, I can't keep up with all of it. But, yeah, my best place is Dame of the World at AOL or the Facebook, uh, Shanghai Kate's um, Helen Brand, Shanghai Kate Helen Brand. Or you can Google me. You know, I love to be Googled. There's lots of stuff about me on Google that even I don't know about. And, uh, and so that's, that's how – or they can call me. They can call me here in Austin, Texas. My phone number here is 512-551-3573 this is my shop number. And so just give me a call. I'm very easy to get a hold of. I'm very accessible. Love to talk, obviously. So there you go. Thank you so much, Kate. And uh, if anybody needs to get a hold of me, you can always hit me up on Instagram, uh, Twitter, at uh, Gmail. It's all OG Joe Swanson. That's how you get a hold of me. Um, I'll be at Hard Luck Tattooing for, uh, man, the rest of today. I'm going to get this podcast up and, and go and uh, make some tattoos. And so if you need to get a hold of me, come on, come on down, get tattooed. Um, I have some uh, prints still for sale of uh, most recent painting that I did. I'm going to be uh, making some other prints coming up. 
Um, I, w- I do want to do, uh, I promised uh, to do a little bit of a review on um, Marco Hernandez, who is the maker of Anvil Armrests, uh, sent me an armrest and, um, to try out, and I fucking love it. It is one of the, it, it's the best armrest I have ever used, um, by far. It, it's incredibly practical, it's strong, it's sturdy. Um, one thing I do like about it, <clears throat> besides the uh, bottle opener, which is great for cracking open Coronas, is <laughs> that uh, the top portion of it, it's not just a stationary flat armrest, uh, which I've used for many, many years, but it, it has a, um, the ability to swivel around, and you can place it in all different uh, directions, it allows you to get a great stretch on the arm. I've used it for arms, hands, heads, legs. I've, I've used it for everything in the last few weeks that I've been using it. Um, I just got my knuckles tattooed on it last night. Um, it's, it's great. If you haven't checked these out, please go to Anvil. It, it, on Instagram is probably the best way to check them out, I would think. Um, Anvil uh, Rest is the Instagram. Uh, it's Marco Hernandez at Lit Fuse Tattoo in Washington. Go check those out is one of the best investments you'll make. Uh, if you're a tattooer, if you're concerned about your work, if you want to do the best quality work that you can do, use the best equipment that you can use. And the Anvil Rest Armrest is an absolute amazing piece of equipment. So go check that out, at Anvil Rest um, on Instagram. And uh, I appreciate you guys listening. Thank you so much. Um, we hope to... Uh, I'm going to continue to try to bring you great shows, great guests, Um, Go tell your friends about the podcast. Thanks again, guys. Take care.
Sensing 